We're entering the liturgical season of Eastertide uh, that's made up of the 50 days between Easter and Pentecost, and it's a season of celebration, but it's also one of learning how to live like Easter people in the world. Last week, our Easter text was from the Gospel of Luke, and interestingly, the good news there was the emptiness of the tomb. Matthew and John record Jesus encountering some of the women disciples in the graveyard garden, but in both Luke and Mark, it is an empty tomb that heralds the resurrection. Later that same day, some of the disciples locked themselves in a room to sort out their next steps. Others began to return home. Our story today follows Cleopas and another disciple, likely his wife, as they encounter an intriguing stranger on the road to Emmaus. Listen now for God's word. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near to the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it's almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. God of new life that continues to spring up despite all obstacles. Meet us here in this your holy word. Speak to us what we need to know. Quiet all the distractions within and without. Shape us into the people you had in mind at creation. Amen. 
My son Julian is two and a half and he's just recently begun to really push boundaries and ask a lot of questions that little ones often ask. So when I hold a boundary that he doesn't like, I get a lot of, but mom, these days. He's also saying, but why? And the one that is most frequent, now what, mom, now what? I noticed this the other day when I was cooking dinner and he was helping me, we were making spaghetti sauce, something I've done countless times before, but it's new to him. Every step, adding oil to the pan, browning the meat, adding the vegetables and the sauce, every few seconds was punctuated with, now what? Now what? Now what? (laughs) For him, every step is new. Understanding how spaghetti sauce is made is new for him. He doesn't know and can't see what comes next. I was struck by how sometimes I was able to point to a next step when he asked, now what? But other times the answer was, well, we we just wait. We gotta let it cook a while. (laughs) Now what? Now what? I kept thinking about the disciples and how they reacted to Jesus' death and then to the nonsense of the women's news of the empty tomb. On Easter evening, all of them were asking themselves, each other, and God, now what? For some, they understood that the empty tomb was good news, even if they didn't understand exactly how yet. For others, they thought the women were completely delirious. The two disciples in today's story decided to head home. Jesus had died on a Friday, they stayed in Jerusalem to observe the Sabbath, and then they hit the road. They weren't sure what the answer was to the question of, now what? But there didn't seem to be a point in staying in Jerusalem. Roads and traveling are big themes in the Gospel of Luke. Most of the stories that Luke recorded of Jesus' healing and teaching happened in liminal spaces while he was traveling from one place to another. It was fitting then that his first appearance after the resurrection would be two disciples as they walked along a road. Because the disciples were in a liminal space in more ways than one, between a city with heartbreaking memories and home, between the loss of a dream and a beloved teacher and the unknown future of now what? They walked, weighed down with grief and confusion as they talked through the events of the previous days. Jesus met them in the midst of that grief, in the middle of that confusion, and gently asked them about their sorrow. Incredulous that he wouldn't know why they were sad, they answered with some snark. But Jesus asked again, what things? They explained and then said, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. We know exactly what that feels like, don't we? We had hoped. We had hoped this time things would work out. We had hoped this time the relationship would last. We had hoped this time the job would be life-giving. We had hoped she would recover. We had hoped that making some changes in our lives would be easier. We had hoped. The disciples had hoped Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel, to conquer earthly oppressors, and usher in a new era of peace with Israel as a sovereign nation. But those hopes had seemingly been crushed. Their conquering Messiah dying a humiliating criminal's death, it just couldn't be. Grief and loss are so painful that we tend to expend a lot of energy trying to make meaning of what has happened. 
As the disciples walked to Emmaus, they were doing the work of meaning making. They were discussing and processing, trying to understand what they should do now when they didn't plan on their leader dying. What did it mean that Jesus died? Had they been wrong to follow him? Was he a false prophet? What else didn't they understand? Had God stopped caring about them? Would there be another Messiah? And if so, how long would they have to wait this time? There's two things about the disciples' experience that I think resonates with us today. The first is that we think if we could just understand, we could handle that pain better. If we just knew why, if we had more data, some more reasons as to how something happened, we would feel better. The problem there is that that's actually about maintaining an illusion of control. If we keep seeking information, then we don't have to feel. We long for a neat and tidy story, a linear progression. But what if the story is one that has a discernible thread, but tends to wind this way and that, spiraling back on itself, taking two steps forward and one step back? We don't like ambiguity. The other thing about the experience of the disciples that I think we can relate to is the way they made sense of what had happened. As they sought to make meaning of the events of the days prior, they began to tell a story about what had happened, not just the facts, Jesus was killed, but with their own interpretation. We had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. Lost my page here, sorry. There's an author named Peter Block who's written a lot about community development, and one of the questions that he asks groups is, what, are, what is the story we're telling about ourselves? What is the story we're telling about ourselves? The bare facts of our lives may actually be fairly neutral, but when we talk about them, we interpret them. We put a spin on them. While one person may tell you they've recently been laid off with dejection in their voice and they share how they're worried about what to do next, another person may experience a layoff with optimism as an unexpected opportunity for a fresh start. We are telling stories about ourselves and our lives all the time. The disciples had begun to tell a story about what had happened to Jesus and it's clear from their sorrow that their story was not one of hope and joy existing alongside sorrow. Even if the women who found the tomb empty understood it was good news, it didn't erase the pain of all that they had witnessed over the past several days. But they knew it was good news. Hope had come alive in the women's hearts even though some of the sorrow remained. My guess is that these disciples were walking along the road, they were telling a story about how their hopes had been dashed their expectations disappointed, their faith in God depleted. My guess is they were telling a story to themselves and then to Jesus himself that God had abandoned them, that all hope was lost. And that story, that interpretation, feels pretty familiar. I think we tell that story a lot today. When things in our lives get really hard, when we receive a diagnosis that's dire, when our marriage falls apart, when we are lost in the wilderness of mental illness or addiction, we tend to tell stories of cynicism and despair. We tend to assume that God has abandoned us and all hope is lost. 
Jesus walked right into the midst of that story the disciples were telling and began to tell a story of his own. He was doing meaning-making, too. The text says, Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Jesus traced the thread of God's redemptive love from Moses up to his own death and rising. The events were the same, but he told them a different story than the one they had told him. A story of God working in the world, sometimes explicitly, sometimes behind the scenes, but a God who knew the next steps, who knew the answers to now what, and worked for goodness and peace at every opportunity. So first, Jesus told them a new and different story. He helped them to make a new and different meaning of the grief they were experiencing. And then, as they reached Emmaus, they urged him to share dinner with them. It was there at the table, as Jesus broke and blessed the bread that they knew. A flash of recognition. Their intuition was confirmed. Jesus was alive, truly, and he was right there with them. First thing he did was tell them a new story, and the second thing he did was reveal himself in a familiar ritual. The disciples had to experience that ritual and his presence there to understand it was him, to let go of the last of their cynicism and despair. Because the last thing they had all done together before the arrest and crucifixion, if you remember, was they shared a meal. A meal where Jesus blessed the bread and the cup and he gave it to his friends and said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Remember me. We don't like liminal spaces or ambiguity, but those are the spaces in which God tends to show up. One of the things the resurrection teaches us is that we think we need more understanding, more information, but sometimes we just need a willingness to not fully understand everything immediately. The resurrection, especially the way it's told in the Gospel of Luke, invites us to be patient with the way that life unfolds and trust that God is with us in the midst of it. Jesus' ministry and life had encouraged the disciples to become a people of hope. They left all kinds of things behind to follow him. They built a community together across all kinds of social and cultural barriers. They were healed by him. They had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. They had become accustomed to hoping. But their grief and pain reversed that habit of hoping and sent them back into a default mode of despair. Culturally today, we're very accustomed to not hoping. We tend to admonish dreamers and say, don't get your hopes up. But Jesus' life, death, and resurrection invite us to do the exact opposite, to get our hopes up, to cultivate habits of hope. So how do we do that? I read a book about habits recently that talked about how habits are made through repetition, not necessarily by completing the full behavior each time. So for example, if you want to get up early to read for 30 minutes before you go to work, we think we need to do 30 consecutive days of 30 minutes of reading. But this book argued that's unrealistic. Its premise was, if we start with the smallest incremental step toward the habit we want to make, and then repeat that, and then gradually increase, that's the way to build a habit. The initial goal is to find the simplest, easiest way to nudge yourself toward that habit and then build momentum as you move forward. So in this example, if you begin to build the habit, you would place a book by your alarm clock and read for one minute every day for a week. 
Certainly you can read for one minute, right? It's repeating the small things rather than trying to repeat the full habit. That's what tends to get us there little by little. Cultivating a habit of hope starts the same way, just as small. Ideally, one day when we have a shift of mindset so that when some hardship or trial comes our way, we don't immediately think, oh, this always happens. Why doesn't God care about me? But on the way to that big mind shift, on the way to telling a new story, there's also an embodied ritual, a habit of hope that Jesus himself gave us. The breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup. At the table in Emmaus, it was a way to remember Jesus' love for them and process the grief of Holy Week, but over time, it was repeated by Jesus' followers over and over again. It became a ritual. Over the centuries, it became the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So perhaps the call for us, especially when life gets really hard and confusing, when grief and anxiety threaten to overwhelm us, is to start with a very small habit gathering for worship and participating in communion. When our hearts are weighed down, can we prioritize this time together, this time in worship within a safe family of faith? Can we turn here and receive the bread and the cup that Jesus offers? Can we approach God in this space with open hands and hearts so we might receive the grace and love that even death and hell can't conquer? Friends, what a gift we have been given. A new story to tell, a new story of new life, the invitation to be people of hope, to cultivate habits of hope by the one who himself is our only hope and consolation in life and in death. What a gift. Thanks be to God. Amen.